If you would please uh, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 and maybe have one finger in Acts chapter 16. We're starting a new exposition of a book of the Bible, and it's the book of Philippians. And we learn more about the people at Philippi and the founding of this church than any of the other churches that Paul writes to. There's more information about Philippi than there is about Rome or about Corinth or about the other churches because it seems that the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, actually traveled with Paul and Silas and stayed behind and got to know the people at the church at Philippi a little bit better and recorded for us more of what happened in the founding of their church. Paul is the undisputed author of this book and it's very clear, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ Jesus. He is the one who wrote this. The church at Philippi was first founded by Paul. It's the first church founded in Europe, actually. Sometimes if you look in the back of your paper Bibles, they used to make Bibles out of paper, where, and they would put maps in the back. And I have this cool one that has the first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey, and journey to Rome that Paul took. And I can follow those lines and kind of see, oh, Paul was going up this direction through Asia Minor, and then he ended up trying to go one way and ended up going further east into what is now Europe, into Turkey. And so this happened on his second missionary journey around 51 A.D. And so this is early on. But on his second missionary journey, just maybe four or five years later, on his way out and on his way back, he stopped a second and third time at Philippi. Short visit to found the church, then a couple follow-up visits. And it was, this letter was written some ten years later when he was in prison. And it's believed that it was his imprisonment in Rome in 61 A.D. that he wrote this. Founded in 51, ten years later, He's writing this letter. And Paul, in prison, had been generously supported by the Philippian believers. He was a missionary and depended on the support of these churches to help send him along to bring the gospel. And they had contributed to the needs of the church in Jerusalem that had many mercy needs there. And then the people in Philippi had heard that Paul was imprisoned and they sent one of their people, Epaphroditus, to go check on him and bring a gift on the way or maybe when he got to Rome, he fell sick, like deathly sick. And so Paul wanted to write the Philippian church and to encourage them. First, Epaphroditus is better. And so he's going to send Epaphroditus with the actual letter to the church at Philippi. And then to also encourage them to know that he is praying for them, that he is thankful for their generous gift, but he also wanted to deal with some disunity. We're going to see that there's a couple ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, that weren't getting along, and Paul wanted to encourage them towards unity. He wanted to correct some false teaching that was floating around in the church that he had gotten wind of, but mostly throughout the book, he wanted to encourage this young church. Joy. Rejoice, joyous. This word is used like 16 different times over the course of only 104 verses. It's 
a prominent theme of Paul's. And it's from a guy writing from prison. We have much to learn about how to express, experience joyful living in Christ. And that's what I think the book of Philippians is going to help us with. Because we're not in prison, but we struggle with being joyful. And if we can learn from somebody under his circumstances to live joyfully in Christ, I think we're going to look differently to the world around us. And so follow along. I'm going to read those first two verses of Philippians. Maybe in this sermon series you may challenge yourself. I'm going to memorize the book of Philippians. This will be the easy week for you to memorize those two verses. But I'm also going to include Acts uh, 16, a section there. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was on Paul's missionary journey passing by Mysia. They went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the spread of the gospel in the early church, and thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for Luke recording for us his interactions with these uh, people in need of a Savior in Philippi. We thank you for the book that he wrote to this dear church of his, this church that he loved so much. And I pray, Lord, that we would be challenged in our faith, challenged to have joy in our living in Christ. And, Lord, that these ancient words penned so long ago would have a profound impact today as we see that same Holy Spirit at work in our lives that worked in those first believers that received this letter. Lord, we want to hear and obey. We want to learn of you. I pray that you would teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we have more information about what happened at Philippi on this missionary journey and the beginnings of this church than any of the other churches that Paul wrote to. And so I want us to turn to Luke chapter 16 and look at how this develops in the work of God bringing the gospel to spread. Remember, Jesus told his disciples after his resurrection that you are to remain here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, you will go and be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Philippi was out on the outer re- regions to, from Jerusalem. It was quite a distance away. And so Paul is making this journey, and he was in verse 11 of Acts 16, setting sail from Troas, made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And this is a leading city, but it's not the uh, main governmental place of uh, where all everything came down. But it was a prominent city because it was a, a colony, a Roman colony, 
that was established as a place where Roman officers, generals would be able to retire, and they were taken care of there. And so there was a strong Roman presence, and there was a way of doing things that imitated what was going on in Rome. There was a structure. There was commerce that went through. A, a main travel route went through Philippi. And in verse 13, we see that on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. You see, there wasn't much of a Jewish presence here. We know because there was a place of prayer, but there wasn't a synagogue. In order to have a synagogue in that time, you had to have at least 10 men and their families to constitute a synagogue. So it was a small presence, mostly of women who gathered together at this riverside for prayer. Verse 13, And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after that she was baptized in her household as well. You see, God opened her heart to what Paul was saying. That's how anyone and everyone ever comes to the Savior, is that it has to be a work of God in our hearts to understand, to hear and to understand the good news. And God did this for this wealthy businesswoman who dealt in purple goods. And she then immediately turns to Paul and he asks them, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The first convert, Lydia, at this church that was to be established. Verse 16, we are introduced to maybe the second convert of the church. Very different than a wealthy businesswoman. Verse 16 says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed turned and said to her, the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. A slave woman, probably the second added to this fledgling church, stepping in line with this wealthy businesswoman. Verse 19, something happened because this slave girl couldn't tell fortunes any longer, and that was what earned her keep with her masters. In verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And they had brought them to the magistrates and they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods, and when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received his orders, he put them in inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. End of the mission trip, right? The gospel is shut down. There's no more revivals going to happen in Philippi. But God... In verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. 
I wish I could ask Luke, could you put a little parentheses in there? What were those guys at midnight thinking of these guys praying and singing while they're trying to sleep? I don't know. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately, all the doors were open. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer brought the lights, called for lights, and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And when he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And they and took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. He brought them to his house, set food before him, and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed. Another convert to the church in Philippi. There was a hubbub in the city because the magistrates told the police, you can let them go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent and let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. This was what they did not know. You can't just treat Roman citizens in this manner. And Paul said, and uh, they do now not throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid, and they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city, and they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. What an amazing first visit. At least three converts. I'm going to speculate that there may have been some more in the mixed. But ten years later, Paul is writing this letter. And he's writing to this church so that he could encourage them about joyful living. And in these first two verses, it's a normal greeting that in those days there were certain customs for how to write a letter. Uh, just like we have, dear so-and-so at the end, sincerely or love so-and-so. You're going to have the who it's to, who it's from, and a greeting. This gets reversed, and it's a who it's from, who it's to, and then the greeting. They went right to the the chase so they know, hey, who is this letter for, and who is it from? They don't have to go all the way to the end to find out who it's from. Maybe that's more efficient than the way that we write letters. Needless to say, we should slow down and really glean what's in these rich two verses. These theological truths, this, this simple greeting, will have a profound impact on our lives. They're worthy of our deep consideration. Notice first the servants in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, St. Paul to the servants at Philippi. He says, we're the servants, you're the saints. He has a relationship with them, it's evident because of what he doesn't say. He calls himself a servant. He doesn't say, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul does introduce himself that way in Romans, Galatians, and other, play, other writings. And he did so mainly because he had to, to correct or to impress upon them, this isn't just good old Paul. I'm speaking on authority from God as an apostle telling you something maybe you don't want to hear or something that's hard. But in this writing, he has such a warm, affectionate relationship with these brothers and sisters in Christ that he's able to drop the honorific title of apostle and just go right to his heart and say, Paul, a servant. We need some biblical context for this word servant or slave. This word doulos is used through the New Testament. It's it's rooted in really a biblical understanding of what servanthood was in the Old Testament. And in Exodus 21, I want you to hear what takes place there. Moses says, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When a Hebrew, when an Israelite buys a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If someone became homeless or uh, indebted and there was no way that they could pay back their bills, they would enter into this relationship of servanthood to a master. And if he comes out after six years, the seventh year, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, he shall go out, his wife shall go out with him. And it goes on to say that if the master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if he plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door of the or the doorpost, and the master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. This is out of a kinsman's kindness of food, protection, a roof over his head, six years of service, ready to go free. He says, I love my master. I want to stay. I will willingly commit myself. And then he would be marked In the current context of the Roman Empire, we see that Paul talks about the Lord's servant in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, we read, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Each of us believers, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price we have a new master. 1 Corinthians 7, 22. He that is called the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, also, he, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. It sounds a little confusing, but Paul makes it clear in Romans 6 that we were in slavery to sin until Christ redeemed us, ransomed us, and now we owe our allegiance to Him. But it's not in the servile fear. It's in the loving devotion to our Master who rescued us and gave his own life to make us his own. The doulos in the ancient world was owned by and totally possessed by his master. He existed for his master and no other reason. He had no personal rights. He was at his master's disposal 24-7. He had no will of his own, but was completely subservient to his master. This is our relationship to Jesus. It's total devotion, but it's grounded in His love for us. 
He laid his life down for us. So what, what could be the application to this deep theological truth? It has really practical implications for our lives if we understand ourselves as serv- servants. Because in our society, it's very easy as consumers to think that we're the master and God's our servant. When we pray to him, God, I need this, I need that, and we can turn things around from what they ought to be. We're his servant. He is the master. In our therapeutic age, we see self-esteem, self-care as more more necessary than humble servanthood and care for others. It really offends our modern sensibilities to seek and to serve and not be served, to follow Christ's example of humility, looking not for our own interests only, but for the interests of others. And no task is too low for you because Jesus, the master of all, took up a basin and a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. For us, as Christ's servants, we ought to be willing to do whatever it takes, whatever's at our disposal to serve our master. Remember, you're first and foremost a servant of a loving master, Jesus, who loved you and laid his life down for you. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Well, let's break this down. It's to the saints. Often we have in our minds saints of old that were people who are recognized, canonized by the Roman Catholic Church for miracles they've done and good deeds, and therefore they're seen as super elevated Christians. And that's not at all what we see in the Scriptures. We see that saints are all those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary, says, as a title, saints points in one direction to what Christ has done for them, and in the other direction to the obligation which now falls upon us to live out the new position God has given us. This word saint, its root word is, is holy, set apart, and devoted to another purpose of a different order of things, living in a different sphere. God himself is described as holy, holy, holy. And when the scriptures talk about the name of the Lord, the descriptor of the holy name of the Lord is used more often than the majestic name, the righteous name. More than all of those combined, holy is the attribute that is describing the name of the Lord. And if it describes the name of our God, it ought to describe his followers, the ones who seek after him. We are saints in Christ Jesus, and our sainthood is tied directly to Christ, and more specifically, to our position in Christ. Our status as saints is not something we achieve by our birth, by our performance, but only by God's free grace, through the gift of, the, of faith to believe on Christ. Simply put, when we rest on Jesus and put our confidence in Him and not ourselves, we are going to be found in Christ. He died, rose again, paid the penalty for your sin. He purchased your pardon, the punishment you deserve. Christ is now everything we need. Being in Christ, being united to Christ, a theme throughout all of the New Testament that we need to deeply soak in 
so that we understand our value, our position, our significance. And when we really understand you are saints in Christ Jesus, it transforms how you view yourself, how you look at your brothers and sisters here. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, where are they located? Who are at Philippi? Well, just to summarize those charter members of the church at Philippi, Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman who feared God with her household, maybe along with some other ladies at the Bible study. I I would like to think that she brought some of them along. A formerly demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl, currently unemployed, next member of the church. A shaken, literally shaken, suicidal prison guard with his family and his household servants. I had to speculate. This is just speculation that maybe there were some other prison guards that saw this earthquake and they were kind of blown away too and they might have joined in with the church. I bet you some of those prisoners who heard Paul and Silas singing hymns and praying, they might have been part of that early church. But what an eclectic, diverse group of people who wouldn't normally hang out together or find each other. Ought our church look like a place where people from diverse backgrounds diverse jobs, diverse areas of, uh, of town get together and be united together in Christ. These saints are in Christ Jesus. They're located in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Paul made care, careful uh, that he would establish churches that would have an ability to keep going and not just do an evangelism crusade, and then they kind of are left to their own. At each church that Paul went to, he established overseers, just a synonym for elders, elders and deacons at each of these churches. Why? Well, it provided the structure and the means by which God was going to keep this entity growing, expanding, multiplying, and doing the very same thing. The servant leader, the saints who are devoted to God in their given roles. We have what is called a book of church order. Uh, We read from our Westminster Shorter Catechism this morning. There's a larger catechism. There's a Westminster Confession of Faith, all written in the 1600s, big theological treatise. Alongside that, underneath it, is our book of church order that we've derived from the Scriptures How do we do church? How do we govern? It's a form of government. It's rules for discipline. It's a directory of worship. And all put together, it's a fascinating read. If you're going to do something before your nap this afternoon, you might start on it. It's not that boring, but it's so necessary for us to have a system for how we do things. I have a friend from a Bible church that I was on a a Zoom call this week, and I had mentioned about our book of church order. And he's a lawyer in California. He says, oh, I'm so jealous because our church doesn't have a book of church order. So just know that there are people out here, out there that may be jealous of you because we have such a thing. But it just summarizes, how did Paul go about setting elders in a place, overseers, and what were they responsible for? In our book of church order, it says in chapter 7, section 2, The ordinary and perpetual classes of office in the church are elders and deacons. Within the class of elders, there are two orders of teaching elders. These are the pastors. 
and ruling elders. The elders jointly have the government and spiritual oversight of the church, including teaching. Only those elders who are specially gifted, called, and trained by God to preach may serve as teaching elders. The office of deacon is not of rule, but rather of service to the physical, the spiritual needs of the people. In accord with Scripture, these offices are open to men only. I'd encourage you, look at chapter 8 of our church, book of church order. You can Google it. Look at chapter 9 on deacons and see all that these men have committed themselves to do. And I'll tell you, pray for us. Pray for your elders and deacon because we fall short. This is such a high calling that God's placed on us to help govern, shepherd, care for the flock. And Paul was clear that this church is a church that wants to run in a way that is in order, that is, that is good. Pray for your elders. Pray for your deacons. We're called to equip you for the work of the ministry. Avail yourself of those times of equipping, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school. You have in your insert all of the things that we have for the children to equip them and all of the classes that we have for our adults on an evangelism class, on uh, the holiness of God, on a survey of the minor of prophets, the doctrine of salvation. We're seeking as elders, as deacons, to equip you for the ministry that God's called you to. And then pray. Ask God how God has given you gifts and abilities by His Holy Spirit to serve within the congregation. Uh, you have time. You have talent. You have treasure that is, belongs to your master. And ask the Lord how you can use that. And approach one of your elders or deacons with, what do you need help with? How can I be of service within this body, the church? This greeting to the saints, from the servants, is grace and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, it's such a rich, marvelous word. And it's shorthand for all of God's blessings, all of His favor, the spiritual riches given to us freely through Jesus. It's God's free, unmerited, unprovoked love to those who really deserve his wrath because of our sins. When God found us, we were guilty of the same spiritual adultery that God showed uh, Israel had when the Lord said to Hosea, go show love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and she is an adulteress. Love her. Their spiritual adultery was called out by Hosea. Scotty Smith penned a prayer where he says, Heavenly Father, for many years I've marveled at what I've only called, known to call your unconditional love. And yet now I understand the magnificence and the measure of your love is far more stupefying. You don't simply love your people unconditionally without conditions, but contra-conditionally, against all conditions. That is, in full view of every condition that mitigates against your lavish, passionate affections being set on us and poured out on us consistently. Hosea's profound difficulty calling to love Gomer, his adulterous wife, was a gospel parable of the way that you love your people, the way you love me. You don't pretend about anything. You see every foolish action I take, every sinful inclination of my heart, my brokenness, my weakness, and it's spiritual adultery. And yet you continue to love me 
and your people. Indeed, Father, it's the weight of your love, not the weight of your law, that moves us to penitent tears and unspeakable joy. How how does Paul know the joy? Because he knows God's grace. He knows he deserves God's wrath. But against that, he has set his love on us. That's grace. Take a moment to contemplate and just to revel in God's marvelous grace, his amazing grace, his unconditional love, his contra-conditional love. That peace is connected to the peace. Uh, That peace is connected to the grace. Because of God's grace, you can have peace with God. It's the word shalom in the Old Testament that meant a wholeness, a completeness, a harmony with God within ourselves and with others that was the desire of God's people. It's our desire. And it's only possible because of being in Christ. You have peace with God. You know, it's why we pass the peace every week. It is not just an intermission in the midst of worship service that we go around and pass the peace. It's because it's exactly what Jesus did when he rose again and he greeted his disciples. We find three times in John 20, he gives them peace in verse 19 of John 20. On the evening of the day, of the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to him again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. Thomas was missing. He came back eight days later And with Thomas with them, although the doors were locked, Jesus came in, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it at my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Every time that Jesus offers peace, he points to his marks. He points to the cross. He points to his sacrifice to bring peace with God and peace with one another. Practically, how should this show itself in our lives? Grace and peace are really the inexhaustible fuel that drives our worship, that, de- that drives our desire for unity within the church. So if you're feeling a lackluster in your worship, if you're feeling like your worship lacks passion, feed the flame with the fuel of God's grace. This deep profound truth of salvation through grace it stirs our affections towards god this isn't some revivalistic hype this isn't some positive vibes that you're sending grace is real and it fuels our worship so that it is genuinely passionate peace as much as it's possible live at peace with all men harmony is fueled and driven by the peace that God has made for us. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. You can reconcile with your enemies. You can pursue peace with that estranged family member, a brother or sister, a son or daughter, maybe a father or mother that you've become distant from. God has demonstrated that his shalom is possible and it's desirable and we can find peace with those that we're estranged from or that we're at attention from. These rich theological terms of grace and peace, of servants, of saints, of being in Christ, 
all of these help to fuel in us our passion for Christ, our worship of Christ. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your peace. Cause us to live every day in light of your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response.